And the passage we're going to look at this morning is very much like that. It's found in the ninth chapter of Genesis. And I'd like to encourage you to turn there. And we'll study this passage together because I think that it is understandable and it's very, and it is indeed uh, relevant. Uh, Paul says that all Scripture is inspired of God and is profitable. And uh, the portion of the Bible that he was talking about specifically in that statement is the Old Testament. And so we need to see the profit of, of this passage in our setting. Genesis 9. We'll begin reading with verse 18. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the earth. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. Proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backward and covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. The lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend the territory of Japheth. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be his slave. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Altogether, Noah lived 950 years, and then he died. Now, as you know, this uh, account comes after the flood, the great flood that destroyed humanity as it uh, then existed. There were only eight people that survived. And that story is given to us in chapters 6 through 9. Or at least that's the biblical account of the flood. Bill Cosby has another one. But uh, we'll, we'll take our uh, information from these chapters 6 through 9 in Genesis. Peter says in commenting on, this, on these events that uh, God led Noah to construct an ark in which a few people, that is eight, were safely carried through the water. And that's his summation of the flood story. We're told in the opening uh, verses of uh, chapter 9 and at the end of chapter 8 that when Noah came out of the ark, the first thing he did was to build an altar and to worship the Lord. He had his priorities straight. If I had been Noah, I probably would have first started out to put a roof over my family's head and uh, look for a job or something else to provide for their needs. But uh, Noah had learned to put first things first, and so he worshipped God. He reestablished, reaffirmed his relationship with God at uh, the very beginning. And uh, then in verse 18, we're told that the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham and Japheth, Ham was the father of Canaan. Now twice in this passage we're told that Ham was the father of Canaan. And when a thing is repeated in Scripture, it's normally important. The purpose of that statement is to tell us why the Canaanites became such a degraded people. In fact, that's the point of this entire story. 
is to explain the degradation of the Canaanites. In later history, they're described as a, as a people who were, who were morally corrupt. They were corrupt to the core. There was nothing salvageable left in that society, and that's why they were destroyed. And uh, one of the purposes of this story is to explain the origins of that uh, degraded uh, condition. Ham was the father of Canaan. Furthermore, we're told in these opening verses that all of humanity can trace their ancestry back to uh, Ham, Shem, or Japheth, ultimately to Noah. But uh, the human race is divided into these three categories, and we can trace our origins back to one of these three men, either Ham, Shem, or Japheth. And the genealogies of these three men are given to us in chapter 10 in what's called the, the Table of Nations there. Now, as the story unfolds, uh, Noah comes out of the ark and he plants a vineyard. And uh, even today, if you travel through Turkey, the natives will point to a little place on the side of uh, one of the mountains of Arat, Ararat, and a little village up there called Agari, and, and that's supposed to be the traditional site of, of Noah's vineyard. There's certainly nothing wrong with his planting a vineyard, and uh, as the grapes grew, he harvested them, and he made wine. And he drank the wine, and he became drunk. Now, that bothers a lot of people. And uh, there are attempts to try to explain Noah's behavior. Uh, some would say that some atmospheric change, a change had uh, introduced the process of fermentation into things, and, and now for the first time, grape juice became wine. And he didn't know that he was drinking wine, and he became drunk. For myself, I don't think so. I, I think this is just the way Scripture always treats uh, the heroes of faith. They're just real men. They're just honest to goodness, sure enough, down-to-earth people, and they sin just like everybody else. Abraham was a terrible husband, and the Bible just records it that way. And uh, David was an adulterer, and God just records it that way. He was a prideful man, and Scripture just tells us that he was. And Noah got drunk, and the Bible just says he got drunk. There's no censure here. It just simply... Like Sergeant Friday used to say, just the facts, man. He, scripture just gives us the facts without much commentary. Now, in terms of biblical categories, what, it's wrong to be drunk, to get drunk. Uh, there's no prohibition of drinking wine, but it is a sin to get drunk. Now, you as a Christian may, for various reasons, choose not to drink at all, and that's all right. But we have to understand that the Scripture only prohibits drunkenness. So all we can say about Noah at this point is that for some reason, we can't explain why, he drank too much wine and he got drunk and he sinned. Uh, perhaps he didn't know that this uh, prohibition was in effect. Uh, we're just not told. But in any case, this is a description of the events. And in his drunken state, he threw off his covers and was lying in his tent uncovered. He was naked. Now in those days, they wore a uh, cloak that reached all the way to the floor in cold weather and at night they simply covered up with the cloak and in the morning they uh, put their cloak on and and that was their dress kind of convenient you don't have to make up your bed that way you just wear it uh, we have Carolyn has a big fuzzy blanket on Joshua's bed and uh, and when he gets up in the morning he just wraps up in it and and he wears it until breakfast and uh, that's somewhat uh, the way they did in those days but uh, Noah, in his drunken stupor, uh, 
was overheated, and so he threw off his, his uh, blankets and exposed himself. And along comes Ham for some reason. Now, we're not told uh, what Ham actually did. Uh, the Hebrew simply says he gazed at him. Ham was a married uh, person, and why he should take delight in his father's nakedness is a little difficult to understand. But apparently there was some perverted tendency in Ham that shows up here. Again, the scriptural account is very succinct and restrained, and we're not told what Ham did or, or if there was any action involved. All we're told is that he gazed upon his father's naked state, and he went outside and told his brothers, and perhaps he said something derisive about, about his father. But uh, Shem and Japheth took uh, a cloak on their, they put it on their backs and they backed into the tent and they dropped it over their father and they covered his sins. Uh, Ham uncovered the shame of his father. They covered it. They covered his sins. Now we're told that the uh, old patriarch awoke from his from his uh, drunken condition, and he pronounced what seems to be a curse on Canaan. And this is what I think troubles so many people. It would appear as though he just lost his temper. He's just an angry old man who's been shamed, and so he lashes out in anger at his, at his uh, son. But that's not the case at all. In the first place, this is not a curse. It's unfortunate that it's translated this way, cursed be Cain. The word curse means to make something sterile or unfruitful in contrast to blessing. If you bless someone, you enrich their lives. You make them fruitful and productive. If someone is cursed, his fruitfulness is taken away. His life just becomes empty and meaningless. And in the second place, it could very well be translated, sterile or meaningless is Kenan's life. All of these uh, verbs here are just simple present or what we would call future tense verbs. It doesn't have to be a command or uh, uh, an implied uh, curse. It's simply, he's simply describing what will be. It's a prediction. He recognizes that there is something in this man, Ham, that was passed on to his son Canaan, some strange perverted trait, and it's going to work out in his life so that he is, he's perverted. His life will be meaningless, and he will be the servant of all. Canaan will be the lowliest of, of slaves to his, to his brother. He'll serve his, his brothers, and that's merely a prediction of the outcome of, of this act. Now, the thing I want you to notice is that it's not Ham upon whom this judgment falls. It's Canaan. When I was growing up in the South, I heard preachers on the radio say that the black race was under the curse. And uh, the reason they were servants and slaves and would never rise above that position is because Ham had been cursed. This was a divine edict. And the black race was always to be subject to the white race. But it's not Ham who's cursed. It's Canaan. And if you look right across the page... We're told that the sons of Ham, uh, in chapter 10, verse 6, at least it's across the page in my Bible, in the table of nations, the sons of Ham are Cush, Mitzram, Put, and Canaan. 
So Canaan was only one-fourth of the, of the Hamitic stock. Of, he was one of four sons of, of Ham. The other three were Cush, and Cush was the father of the black races. The Cushites became the Kasites, who settled in what today is uh, the Iranian highlands and then eventually migrated down into to, uh, East Africa, and they became the Ethiopians. No question about that. These are the black races, and there's no curse on them. Cush was the, was the ancestor, the father of all of the black races, the Ethiopian races. Mitzrayim is his second son, and, and that's the, he, Mitzrayim was the father of the Egyptian race all the way through the, through the Old Testament. Uh, that's the name that's given to the Egyptian people. They're, they're called the Mitzrayim. And then uh, Put, or, the, or Punt, are the people who lived in North Africa and Libya. So you see what happens is that the, the judgment falls on only one-fourth of the family of, of Ham, not all. And the judgment on Canaan is worked out in the destruction of the Canaanite nation, both by the descendants of Shem and the descendants of Japheth. We're told specifically in verse 28 that Canaan would be the slave of Shem, and then in verse 27 that Canaan would be the slave of Japheth. Now, if you look across the page again at chapter 10 and verse 2, the sons of Japheth are, and all these folks are listed here, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, so forth. And we know who these people are. They're all Indo-European people. They migrated to the north. They settled in uh, Europe and in uh, Greece and in upper uh, Turkey, what's Turkey today, and in India, and from the Indus Valley all the way across Europe. They, the Japhethites settled. So these are, are the Indo-European people. And uh, the Semites, their ancestors, or their uh, line of their genealogy is given in verse 21 and following of the same chapter. Verse 22, the sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arphaxad, Lud, Aram. And we know who these people are. They're the people that settled the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Arameans, all those folks. Now, what he's saying is that Canaan, he predicts that Canaan would become the servant of the Semitic people and the Indo-European people, and history has confirmed that. This, this prophecy has already been fulfilled years ago. Because by the time of David, the Semites had, had uh, subjugated all of Canaan. They lived in the land, and Canaanites were subject to them. And uh, by the 4th century before the coming of Christ, the Greeks had conquered the Phoenicians. The Phoenicians were Canaanites, and they took the cities of Tyre and Sidon, conquered them. And uh, with, by the second century, the Romans had conquered the Carthaginians, the people of Carthage. Were my, they, they had immigrated from Canaan over to North Africa and established a settlement there. And the Romans destroyed Carthage, and they subjugated the, uh, the Canaanites there. Hannibal, the, the great uh, Carthaginian general, when Carthage fell, is supposed to have said, I know the destiny of Carthage. He knew this prediction. He knew that, that the Canaanites would fall. And so this, uh, this prediction is fulfilled not in some curse on the black races, but rather a judgment on the Canaanites that were judged because of their, their moral perversion, which came through the line of Ham down through Canaan, you see. Now, that's what God wants us to see from this passage. Now, the interesting thing is that, that the whole uh, 
the point of the passage is uh, quite uh, the opposite of the way it's usually seen. Uh, it's not a judgment on the black race at all. As we'll see, it's a judgment upon man for the way he treats man. And that raises the question, why? Why was Ham judged so severely? All he did was look at his father's uh, nakedness. And his, this judgment falls upon him and all of his descendants. Why? What did he do that was so wrong? Well, in order to understand why that action was so wrong, we need to look uh, back in chapter 9 at the statement that, that God makes to Noah after they come out of the ark. After Noah builds the altar, then we read in chapter 9, verse 1, that God blessed Noah and his sons and commanded them to be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. And then in verse 4, but you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood in it. And for your lifeblood I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from every man, too. I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be, be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. You see, before the flood, uh, there were violent times. Scripture says these were times of uh, great violence when man polluted the earth. Human life was cheap. And uh, these offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men were, were, uh, were destroying and degrading human life. And that's why God had to bring the flood. It was like, uh, almost like flushing out a polluted uh, lake or river and restocking it. There was nothing salvageable about society. Life was not, you weren't safe out on the streets. No one was safe. Human life didn't mean anything. And so that, that, uh, that whole segment of, of mankind was destroyed and the world was repopulated. And at the very beginning, God says, now listen, I want you to know something. People are important. They're created in the image of God. They're not to be used. You can use animals. You can use plants. All the plants are given for you, and the animals are given for you, and the whole world is yours, but you're not to use people. People are very special. They're made in the image of God. And you see what Ham did was degrade another human being. He shamed his father, and that's why his judgment was so severe. You'll notice in Scripture that whenever a new... Uh, a, a truth is revealed for the first time, almost immediately afterward, wherever there's a violation of that principle, the judgment is far more severe than at any other time in history. Take the case of Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament. They just lied, and they were struck down. And people after that time lied, and they weren't struck down. But in that case, you see, they had just had a fresh revelation of truth, which they violated, and God acted in judgment. The point seems to be that he's serious about these things. He's not playing games. And so when he reveals this truth about the unique character and nature and quality of humanity, he says men are important. They need to be held in high honor and respected and loved and appreciated for what they are. And Ham says, I'm not going to do that. And he degrades the quality of man, and judgment falls on him as a result. And that's why I think this passage is so relevant for us today, because we're living in, in, in parallel times. You know, uh, 10, 15 years ago, we could talk about the way people in the East 
felt about human life, and we could say that life is cheap in the East, but it's become cheap in the West as well. Man doesn't have any value. It's just junk. It's worthless. Human life doesn't mean anything. You can see it by our attitude toward abortion. An unborn life doesn't mean anything. You can just take it anytime. You know, if it's inconvenient, you just take a life. You can see it in our attitude toward, uh, toward capital punishment. It used to be that a life was worth a life. But today a life is worth a few years in prison and time off with good behavior. And, and humanists will say, no, no, you see, capital punishment is very inhumane, but they're not thinking clearly because what they're saying when they do away with capital punishment is that a life isn't worth anything. And we're living in a, we're living in a time, you see, when, when we're not humane. People are not loving and caring about people. People don't amount to anything. They're just trash to be used and thrown away. And women are to be treated that way, you see. And that's coming through all the media. I, I, personally, I don't have any problem with television. We have one in our house. But I'll tell you, that's one medium where the world just gets right into our thinking and gets us with the violence and the degrading of human life and uh, the way people go about coping with problems which are so derogatory and derisive and undermine the quality of human life. It's all over the place. People don't love people. They don't care about people. And Jesus told us it would be that way. He told us that in the, in the years or months or longer periods of time that precede the coming of Christ, that the love of many will grow cold, and that's what's happening. We're living in a very cold world where people don't care about each other. And that's why it's so important for us as God's people to be loving. You see, that's what ought to distinguish us as God's people, not the size of our building or the size of our congregation or how much money we give. Those, those are really irrelevant. The issue is how loving are we? That's what we ought to be known for in Boise. Do we really care about people? How do we feel about black people in our community? You know, this passage tells us that that line is traced right back to, to Ham and Noah. And we mustn't degrade them or use them or defile them. Or how do we feel about Indians or Chinese or anybody who's different than we are? Uh, There's a character in Idaho history, uh, Anthony McGivern, I think his name was, who uh, shot a man up here on the Payette River back about 1880, 85, shot him in the back. He was rolled up in a blanket. And McGivern was something of a notorious drunk, and he just happened to be going down the river, and he saw a man roll up, and he shot him. And he was brought here to Boise for trial, and his defense was that he thought it was an Indian. And fortunately, justice prevailed, and, and uh, he, he paid with his life for that act. But you see, and we say, now that's a terrible way to think, because an Indian is a man, but, and, and we certainly wouldn't shoot one, but what about our attitudes? How do we feel toward men as men, regardless of their color or their background or their education or their political beliefs? How do you feel about Mr. Carter? I heard someone call him an idiot the other day. You know, and and maybe you don't agree with Mr. Carter. I'd like to have a talk with Mr. Carter about a lot of things. 
But, but he's a man. See, he's not an idiot. He's a man. Or Mr. Church. Or the liberals. Or the conservatives. Or the Democrats. Or the Republicans. Or the Mormons. I don't agree with Mormon theology. It's not Christian. It's not biblical by any stretch of the imagination. But they're people. And they're people that God loves. And it's always wrong to be derogatory or derisive or in any way to degrade them. See, because they're created in the image of God. They're people. And people are important to God. Or Christian brothers who speak in tongues. How do we treat them? See? They're people. And we need to take this very seriously. This isn't an option for us. I mean, look, look at, uh, at Canaan. See, God takes very serious the degrading of human life. And, and judgment follows. We need to love them. We need to care for them. We need to meet needs wherever, they find, wherever we find them. And thinking this through for myself, I just thought of some, some practical steps to take I, I think we need, first of all, to judge evil in our own hearts. Uh, society has taught most of us that certain people are worthwhile and certain people are not, and we need to get straight in our mind that people are God's most important product, whether they're red, yellow, black, or white, or Democrat, or Republican, or whatever, see? And just sit in judgment on those bad attitudes and, and work through our own vocabulary, our, not only our way of thinking, but our way of speaking about people and get rid of the terms that we use that are derogatory and the jokes that we tell that stereotype people, you know, the Pollock jokes and stuff like that. They're funny. I enjoy them. But they degrade the, you know, Pollocks are people. So, some of you are Pollocks. And uh, <clears throat> it's not much fun to be on the receiving end of a joke like that. And you see, Jesus said in talking about our attitudes, what do you do more than everybody else? See, uh, the, the quality of human, uh, of, of our Christian life is always judged on a little different basis. We have to do more than anybody else around. We say, well, that's silly. You know, those jokes are harmless. But they really aren't because they reflect in our own attitude and uh, our own hearts an attitude toward people that needs to be corrected. So on a, from a negative standpoint, I think we need to judge these attitudes and judge our ways of speaking about people. And on the positive side, we need to take some concrete steps to act in love toward people, us around, people around us who have needs. You know, uh, a man once asked Jesus what was the greatest commandment, and Jesus said, Love your neighbor, or you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. Uh, with all your mind, and your neighbor is yourself. And the man said, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan. The point of that story is that the next person you meet who has a need is your neighbor. So when you walk out of this room today and you see someone in need, you need that's your neighbor, and you need to love them, regardless of what they look like or what their national origin is or whoever they are, see? And, and those needs exist all around us in our neighborhood. Perhaps the most loving thing you could do would be to bake a casserole this afternoon for someone in your neighborhood who's sick, or fix someone's car that needs to be fixed, 
or act in kindness in some way towards someone who hasn't been kind to you at all. Uh, the thought for the day in our bulletin is a, is a quotation from Luke 6. Jesus says, If you love those that love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love you. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to the ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. I know a lady who was driving down the street one day, and it was just raining cats and dogs, and uh, she saw a couple standing on the street corner, a black fellow, a white girl, and it was just raining like crazy, and they had a little baby. And she stopped, picked them up, offered to take them home, and when she got there, discovered they'd been evicted, all of their stuff thrown out in the front yard, and it was just there in a soggy heap. And so she gathered it all up, put it in the trunk of her car, and, and brought them to her house, and fed them, and took care of them, and found a place for them to stay, and, and just nurtured that family and helped them along until finally this, this gal, Diane, came to know the Lord as her Savior. She was Jewish. She'd never heard the gospel in her entire life. And uh, today she's a missionary with the American Board of Mission to the Jews as a result of that, of that contact. Now, God doesn't uh, call us to do that simply to lead people to Christ. That was the sort of the uh, added uh, thing that God did. He calls us to show that kind of kindness to people because they're people. And we need to take that word very seriously. Let's pray. Father... We thank you that you loved us first, and therefore we can love others. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.